Welcome to the Grace High School Podcast. This semester, we are continuing in our series, In Defense of the Faith. So if you'll go, if you'll go with me over to these verses, we'll, we'll start in 1 Corinthians 15, and, uh, and I'll read, and we'll, we'll go ahead and move into our lesson tonight. So let's start in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ, uh, not even Christ, has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not yet been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And then when we look at Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 24 uh, through through 29, or excuse me, through 27, he says, uh, everyone then who hears these words of mine, this is Jesus talking, uh, and, does, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell and great was the fall of it. So the reason that I chose these verses, these passages tonight, I'm going to borrow Jesus' analogy. I think it's equally fitting with, with how I'll use it tonight. Uh, Paul talks about how if, if the resurrection never happened, if Jesus was never raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. Our faith is futile. He says, he says we, we'd be liars and we would only have hope in this life because the resurrection means that you and I will experience life on the other side of death. So if Christ did not raise from the dead, you and I will not experience that life. And so our only hope is in this life. And he says, we are above all people to be pitied. He, he, he says essentially, uh, and to borrow Jesus' analogy here, that, that, our, that our faith in the resurrection is like a man who builds his house on the rock. If the resurrection did indeed happen, our faith is strong and it can withstand criticism, it can withstand trials and tribulations. Uh, but if, if the resurrection never happened, then our faith is like the house built on sand. And our faith uh, is meaningless. And so as we talk about the resurrection, as we talk about, we'll talk about the life and the death and especially the resurrection of Christ tonight, and that's the lens through which I want to look at it is, is that it's of the utmost importance, that without the resurrection, we don't have a Christian faith. All this other stuff that we talk about here doesn't matter if the resurrection didn't happen. And so tonight the question is, uh, how do we know Jesus really lived, was crucified, and resurrected? So as we continue in this series of difficult questions that we face as Christians, uh, this is going to be one of, one of the most important, if not the most important question that we'll ask and, and look for answers to. Uh, last week, we looked at another question that was really at the heart of theism. So theism is the belief in God. And, and theism begins with this question, should I believe in God and if I should believe in God, well, then how, how do I prove the existence of God? And that was where we were last week. How do we prove the existence, or how do we, how do we find substantial evidence for the existence of God? 
And tonight is similar, uh, though it's a, it's a different question. It gets at, a, at the heart of a different matter. Tonight, rather than looking at theism, we're looking at Christianity itself. Uh, so we've gotten to the step of, okay, we've, we've seen what it looks like, uh, the evidence for God, but, but now which God? Which God are we talking about? We're talking about the Christian God. We're talking about Christianity. The question is, should I believe in Christianity? And that begs the question, how do I prove or how do we prove the life, the death, and especially the resurrection of Christ? And so that's where we are tonight. We're going to look at, at extra-biblical uh, evidence, and that, that is, so we, we've used this word before, extra-biblical, again, just means, means evidence outside of the Bible. It doesn't mean that the Bible is not important. It doesn't mean that we don't want to use the Bible. It just means that if we want to find as much evidence as possible, especially for people who don't already believe in the Bible, then extra-biblical evidence is in, important and necessary. So we'll look at extra-biblical evidence, but we'll look at the biblical accounts as well. We'll look in the Bible, and we'll see what is the evidence presented to us in the Bible itself, that Jesus lived, died, and resurrected? And are those accounts trustworthy? Can we trust the Bible that we, that we read every week? And so we'll begin here in the Gospels. Uh, we'll begin in the Gospels, and uh, uh, we'll start with the re- reliability of the Gospels. So we're, when we talk about can we trust the, the Gospels, how do we know that the Gospels are trustworthy? We'll start here. Uh, They serve as eyewitness accounts. They serve as eyewitness accounts. So when we talk about eyewitness accounts, it's kind of a courtroom term, right? It's a legal term that we think about a courtroom. We need an eyewitness in order to prove or disprove someone's guilt or innocence. And so for this, I went to a guy who was a cold case detective. So this is a guy who was a detective in cases that had long since been shut. There was no trail. They had Virtually no hope of solving these cases. He wasn't going to be able to, to probably interview eyewitnesses. He wasn't going to be able to, to, to really uh, get good, hard evidence to things that we, we typically see with crimes. They like to, to have about a 48-hour window where they really have good evidence. And this guy specializes in crimes where they're well past that, right? That, that he's investigating things that have happened long ago. And so he takes that knowledge and he applies it to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The guy's name is, is J. Warner Wallace. And as he talks about the eyewitness account of the Gospels, this is what he has to say. When the apostles chose to share what they believed with the unbelievers in their midst, they did so by proclaiming the truth of the resurrection and their own status as eyewitnesses. This is consistent throughout the book of Acts. The the apostles identified themselves as eyewitnesses, shared the truth as eyewitnesses, and eventually wrote the Gospels as eyewitnesses. One of the criticisms that we face in Christianity uh, from the outside is that the Gospels don't really function as eyewitness accounts because, because the authors don't really ever say, uh, we're an eyewitness to this. A lot of times they speak in the third person and they sound too narrative, too much like a story, and they don't function as eyewitness accounts. But what he's saying here is, in fact, they do serve as eyewitness accounts and they consistently, particularly in the book of Acts, identify themselves as eyewitnesses. They're not just saying, hey, here's something we heard about, and, and this is what happened. They're saying, no, we watched this happen. And so the gospel accounts do serve as eyewitness accounts to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And the other thing that we'll look at as far as the reliability of the gospels is that they can be corroborated. This is another legal term. This is another term when we talk about a courtroom eyewitness account. Corroborate means to, to verify, to, to prove that it's true, right? If you, if you have uh, one set of evidence and you, you need further evidence, you go get something else that will prove that to be true that, so that two, the two sort of stories line up, and that's called corroborating the evidence so, so that the Gospels can be corroborated, they can be verified, 
And this is what Wallace says about this. Uh, he says, skeptics often argue that the corroboration of the Gospels is too limited. And, and so what, he, what he's saying is, when we look for other evidence outside of the Gospels to prove the Gospels to be true, the, the, the skeptics, the critics will say, there's not enough of it. We don't have enough evidence outside of the Bible to come back to the Gospels, see what they say, and go, okay, it lines up with these other things, like archaeological evidence and other things that, that he'll talk about here in a second. That's the point that he's going to uh, refute right here. But the nature of corroborative evidence shouldn't surprise us. We should expect to find touchpoint corroboration. What he means is partial details that tend to corroborate the larger account. And so what he's saying is we shouldn't expect to take the gospel accounts and go out and look elsewhere to, to corroborate those accounts and expect to find all of it perfectly lined up somewhere else to where we can take the gospel accounts and go, bam, they fit perfectly. Look at all the other evidence. It's there. He says, that's not how we would expect corroborative evidence to work. When we're talking about a courtroom case, that, that's not what we do. We don't expect to take an account uh, that we want to verify as true and go out and prove every detail of it uh, word for word elsewhere. We don't expect to find that. That doesn't make something necessarily true. In fact, this is a personal note, I would argue that if everything we saw in the Gospels was perfectly corroborated by everything outside of the Gospels, it would be too easy for that to have been faked. That, to me, would suggest somebody went back, edited everything to make it fit everything else that's been recorded. I think that would suggest too much artificial uh, editing and, and after the fact, uh, somebody coming in and manipulating uh, the Gospels to line up with history. So what he says is, no, we don't expect to find evidence across the board that perfectly matches the Gospels. We expect to find little bits and pieces, and that would be far more substantial than all of it across the board. So here's what he says. So when archaeology confirms some limited percentage of the geographic claims of the Gospels, this should be seen as a significant step towards corroboration. So when we read the accounts and we see the, the locations, the names of the locations described there, and we go and we look at those places and they seem to line up with what we see in the Gospels at least a little bit, that's a big deal. That even just a little bit is a big deal. He says, when, when a first century non-Christian author mentions some limited aspect of the Christian narrative, this should be seen as a significant step toward corroboration. If we go and we look at other historical, non-biblical accounts of history, which we will, and we see anything, anything that lines up with the Gospels, that's a big deal. We don't expect to go out and see some other historical account line up perfectly with the Gospels. Again, that's almost artificial. That's almost manipulated. If we see anything in there, then it's a big deal. What we typically do in our, in our context today, we, with social media and, and news at the, at the touch of a finger on your, on your iPhone or on your, on your TV, we think, man, if something that big happened, everybody in the world would know about it and they'd all have the same account. They'd all have the same story because news like that, news of the resurrection of a person would travel so fast and sweep everybody up that everybody would hear about this. It would be written in all these books. And that's not the case. That's not the case. For one thing, it was a different world back then. News, even big news, didn't travel like it does today. And so, so when, when a man raises from the dead, we don't automatically expect every person in the world to be talking about it right away. But what we do expect to find is, is people whispering about it elsewhere. We expect to hear little bits and pieces of that story popping up in other accounts, which is exactly what we see. And then he says, uh, when internal evidence, that is to say the correct description of proper names, government structure, and cultural settings, substantiates some limited aspect of the Christian accounts, 
this should be seen as a significant step toward corroboration. And when all these corroborative evidences are considered in unison, this should be acknowledged as reasonable verif verification. That's, a, that's an important word because he's no longer saying it's just evidence. He's saying verification. When we talk about a courtroom setting, if, you're, if you can verify something, that means you're talking about it as true. Then we acknowledge that as reasonable verification of the ancient accounts contained in the Gospels. What he's saying is, what we would expect to find if the Gospels were true is little bits and pieces of the truth of the Gospels found all over the place in, in the ancient world, in our archaeological study, in our historical study of the ancient world. We would expect little bits and pieces, and that is exactly what we find. And so for him, he says that, that functions as reasonable verification of the Gospels. Next, we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus. Now, the reason I brought this one up is because this is, this is actually said to be more of a major problem uh, with the gospel accounts than, than actually uh, hard evidence for their, for their reliability. Uh, the, the problem that, that critics will point out is that the genealogy listed in Matthew and the genealogy listed in Luke are different. So what does that mean? Well, uh, one, one author says this, Larry Esposito says, uh, we should now look, and I'm just, this is just an example, this is just a, 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 a little look at a big idea that he's going to explore, and I'll explain it here in a second. He says, we should now look at the genealogies given in Matthew and Luke. In studying them, we must remember the different viewpoints of the gospel writers. Matthew was from the tribe of Levi and thus always perceived things through the Jewish law. If we study Matthew in here, you'll hear me say, Matthew was written to the Jews for Jewish purposes. What Matthew was trying to do was talk to Jewish people to explain Jesus' Jewish role of authority as the Messiah. That was Matthew's purpose. And so everything Matthew says uh, in his gospel account a lot of times doesn't make sense to us because the language is so Jewish that we don't get it. I mean, seriously, that's what, that's, that's what happens in the Gospel of Matthew. We're not Jewish enough to understand the Gospel of Matthew at face value because Matthew is speaking to Jews. And so when Matthew gives his account uh, of, of Jesus' genealogy and he talks about the line of David, he is, the Jews understand that is how Jesus will fulfill the prophecy of Messiah. And so this is, this is how uh, Esposito continues. Matthew's gospel focuses on the kingship of Christ and how Jesus is the son of David. There are more citations of prophecy being fulfilled than Matthew, that is over 100 quotes from the Old Testament, than any other gospel. Because, because who cares about the Old Testament more than anybody else? It's the Jews. And so Matthew's going to constantly refer back to that. Hey, you remember that prophecy? Jesus is coming to fulfill that. You remember that prophecy? Jesus is coming to fulfill that. If he was talking to Gentiles, they wouldn't care. They wouldn't know and they wouldn't care about those Old Testament prophecies. But Matthew is trying to get the attention of the Jews. And he says, uh, uh, because of this, Matthew starts his genealogy of Jesus at Abraham, the first Jew. He then takes us through David and Solomon and follows the succession of kings, listing uh, Jeconiah uh, until he gets to Joseph. And so, so this is just a snippet of the whole point that he's making. But what he says is we go over to Luke, and it, the, 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 uh, the genealogy goes a different route. Not because, not because Jesus... Uh, has two different um, genealogies that are, that are completely different from one another and they don't match up, but because one follows Joseph and one follows Mary. And there's a lot of details involved in, in a, a blood curse that God puts on uh, Je Je Jeconiah, I'd always get his name wrong, 
on Jeconiah. He puts a blood curse on him. And so there, there's all kinds of Jewish details in there that we miss if we don't understand it. And so critics come at this, and this, I'm, I, I'm using this as an example to show you. Oftentimes what I have found is that critics of Christianity, especially critics of the Bible, and we'll look more at the, the, the reliability of the Bible next week, but critics of the Bible, what I have so often found to be the case is they don't understand the context of the Bible. And so their criticisms usually are cleared up when we just understand the context of it, just like this. And so, so I, I'm taking the genealogy of Jesus as an example of this, that, that where this has often been used as a major problem with Christianity and, and the life of Jesus, it can actually be verified. And when we look at it through this lens and we understand exactly why Matthew said what he said, why Luke said what he said, and then we, we follow those in detail, to me, that does not bring into question the reliability of the accounts. It strengthens them. It strengthens them. So next, uh, as we look through, through the Gospels, the next thing we'll look at is Luke's credibility. Now, Luke was not a disciple. Luke was a physician. And, and as a physician, Luke was very detail-oriented. So if there was one person that we could count on uh, who wrote the New Testament to, to be very, uh, pay, pay very close attention to detail, to be very, very careful in giving his account of how things happened, it would be Luke. This is a guy who would not write something down carelessly. He would not write something down without going and verifying it first. If he heard something that he didn't think sounded plausible, he would go and talk to the people who were there and he would make sure that it was legit before he wrote it down. So Luke has, has a very high degree of credibility in terms of the truthfulness of what he would write. And not just the truthfulness of it, but the scientific nature of what he would write. He has a background in science. And so when we talk about the scientific method, being able to, to prove something to be true, Luke thought that way. He thought critically about things. And so it was very important to Luke to get things right. And so uh, Sir William Ramsey was a, a historian in the 19th century who, if I, if I understand uh, my, my history correctly, was very, he walked into this very critical of Luke, wanted to disprove the Gospels, but, but, but studied Luke and walked away convinced that Luke actually had a legit account of things. He says, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. He is possessed of the true historic sense. In short, this author should be placed along with the greatest of historians. And so what he says is Luke, Luke is a scientist, but he had a great sense of history and how to record history. So much so that he should be considered one of the world-class historians of all time. This guy knew how to record history, and he is trustworthy, perhaps more than any of the other people who wrote the New Testament, at least in our, in our, in our terms and how we talk about recording events that happen. And then last, as we look at the Gospels, the last thing we'll look at is the literary style of the Gospels. If you were here this summer, we talked about C.S. Lewis all summer, and Lewis uh, knew literature. Okay, Lewis would say, I don't know much about theology, which was actually pretty humble and, and a little bit of an understatement because the guy did know theology, but he'd say, I don't know a lot about theology, but I do know literature. I've studied all kinds of literature. Lewis, Lewis taught English. He studied English. He studied all different other kinds of literature, and he knew it so, so well. If he was a world-class apologist and a world-class theologian, he was even more of a world-class uh, world linguist, somebody who studied uh, and somebody who studied literature. And so this is what Lewis had to say about the literary style of the Gospels. 
He said, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like, and I know that, one, uh, that, that not one of them is like this. Not one of them is like the Gospels. What Lewis did was he looked at the Gospels, and remember, Lewis was an atheist when he started reading the Gospels. And he looked at the Gospels, and he went, this is not how you write something if you're talking about a myth or a legend. This is not how you write something if it's allegory. It's not supposed to be true. It's just supposed to teach something. That is not what you do. What the writers of the New Testament and the Gospels in particular did was they recorded what they believed because of what they saw to be fact, to be true. There was no hidden agenda beyond the fact that they wanted to tell people truth. And so Lewis, recognizing styles and forms of literature, said that's what the Gospels are. And if you remember when we talked about Surprised by Joy this summer, that was a big turning point for Lewis when he read the Gospels and realized these are not, uh, these are not fictional in their account. So next we're going to look at the early church and early Christians. Okay? And so, so we're, we're uh, still sort of in a biblical context um, but we're also looking at the lives of people not necessarily recorded in the Bible. But first, um, we'll look at Paul and his reference. And so this is a biblical account. Paul's uh, reference to eyewitnesses. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, Paul says this, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some of them have fallen asleep. And, and so what, what we get here is Paul assuring the Corinthians, hey, you don't have to take my word for it. Go find the 500 witnesses who saw Jesus. Go find them, and they'll tell you the same thing. And so a critic of, of this text might say, yeah, but we don't have those 500 witnesses accounted for in other historical documents. Uh, but again, going back to what Wallace said earlier, we don't necessarily have to believe that that, that that would be true. Like We don't have to count on those witnesses giving an account in another historical document just, just in order for them to be real. But, but what really uh, strengthens this argument is Paul's boldness to tell people something so unbelievable that a man resurrected from the grave. And Paul says, look, I get it. This sounds insane. I know. I understand how crazy the resurrection sounds. I witnessed it myself because Jesus appeared to me, but guess, you know, I was alone. And so I'll grant you that. So don't take my word for it. Go talk to the 500 other people who saw him resurrected. And so we, we look at the boldness of Paul's claim, the boldness of Paul's suggestion that you don't have to listen to me, you can go find 500 other people that saw this. And we go, that's confidence. Like, like if Paul was bluffing, these people could have gone and talked to the 500 witnesses and they'd have been like, we don't know what Paul's talking about. They'd have gone back and been like, Paul, you're an idiot, and he was done. That was it. That was the end of his ministry. But that's not what happened. Paul knew, hey, you want to you wanna verify this? You don't have to take my word for it. I'm confident that there are 500 other people that have seen this too. And so we look at the boldness of Paul's claim as evidence that, in fact, he and, and at least 500 other people saw Jesus resurrected. Um, the, the other thing that we'll, we'll talk about with the early Christians and the early church is the martyrdom of the disciples and early Christians. Okay, uh, this again is not an airtight argument by itself that, that the resurrection happened. So I'm not going to take this and say, just because this happened, we know the resurrection happened. But it, but it functions as evidence, and here's what I mean. Uh, when somebody dies for what they believe in, we go, man, they, they really believed it. 
right? They really believed it. That, that doesn't mean that no martyr has ever died for something that wasn't true, right? We've, we've, seen, we've seen people die for other faiths that aren't necessarily true. We've seen, you know, in, in the 60s and 70s, there were Buddhist monks on TV who were dying as martyrs for their faith, and, and we, don't, we don't believe that that is truth, but they died for it. So, so just the fact that people died for this doesn't make it true. But what we do see is the disciples who are said to have died, nearly all of them, gruesome, gruesome deaths, as martyrs. And they were the people who walked and lived with Jesus. And so these are the guys that I would trust above any others, that if they went to the grave, believing that Jesus resurrected, that they had seen it, they're the ones I would believe. Now, lots of other early church Christians died for the same reason, and we'll look at an account of that in just a minute. Uh, But the disciples in particular, dying for the belief that Jesus resurrected because they saw it gives a lot of, of value to their argument that Jesus did, in fact, raise from the dead. Uh, so now we move on to secular or extra-biblical, and then again, outside of the Bible, sources uh, for evidence. So here's some, we get all of those other evidences in the Bible or in Christian tradition, right? So as long as you're, you're hanging out here in church, yeah, you'll hear these, um, but if you're outside of the church, uh, where, can you, where can you find common ground with people outside of the church to say, hey, here's some other evidence. You don't have to just go to the Bible. You can go here as well. Uh, Bart Ehrman, now, now I'll tell you uh, real quick, years ago, before I had no idea who this guy was, and I was at a bookstore, I was just looking for something to read to pass the time, uh, and I found this book on the shelf that talked about the, the life of Jesus and whether or not he, he had actually lived. This guy's whole thesis was that, hey, a lot of people say that Jesus didn't live, uh, and I'm going to tell you from my historical perspective that this guy, in fact, did live. And so I start reading this book, and I, and I got to read most of it because I was passing a lot of time at the bookstore that day. And I got to read most of this book, and, and I found out this is not a Christian author. This guy was not a believer. In fact, he says, look, I, I don't know that I believe in any other stuff. I'm not here to tell you that Jesus was raised from the dead. I, I'm not worried about that. But there are a lot of non-believers who say now that Jesus never even lived. That's a popular argument coming up now. Um, The vast majority of people still believe Jesus lived, but there's a movement now to say Jesus is a mythical character. He didn't even actually live. And Bart Ehrman uh, is is really considered uh, arguably the leading uh, historian on this topic in the secular world um, and so he, his, his, uh, his words carry a lot of weight. He, he works at the University of North Carolina, and, uh, and he wrote this, this book about the life of Jesus and the historical um, reliability of the accounts of the life of Jesus, and this is what he says about it. First, he says, the idea that Jesus did not exist is a modern notion. It has no ancient precedence. It was made up in the 18th century. One might as well call it a modern myth, the myth of the mythical Jesus. This is not a Christian. This guy is not a believer. But he's telling people, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're in denial. At one point, he said, anybody who denies that Jesus actually lived has an agenda. Okay? They're not, they're not, just, they're not just examining history from a fair and balanced perspective. They're coming in with an agenda, and they want to, to tell you something. Right? They're coming in with an agenda if they, don't, if they say they don't believe in Jesus. Something else that Bart Ehrman said is, uh, I think the evidence is just so overwhelming that Jesus existed that it's silly to talk about him not existing. I don't know anyone who is a responsible historian who is actually trained in the historical method or anybody who is a biblical scholar 
who does this for a living, who gives any credence to any, to, at all to any of this. Bart Ehrman, uh, one of the leading historians on this topic, says it's crazy to believe Jesus didn't live. So, so the notion that Jesus is a made-up character is, is really easily disproven. There are so many good accounts that Jesus actually lived that we don't have to worry about this argument. So when we talk about the life, the existence of Jesus, uh, even secular historians will say, okay, yeah, that happened. That did happen. Okay? Uh, another, another secular uh, source that we go to is uh, Tacitus, I believe is how we pronounce this. I'm not real sure. This is a, I think it's a Greek name. Um, and, and he was a, a, an historian um, in, uh, perhaps Roman historian, not Greek, uh, early, early, uh, like, I think, first, second century historian. Um, and he, has, he gives this account of Nero. Uh, he says, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and, afflicted, and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, so he's referring there to the crucifixion, uh, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our uh, procurators, Pontius Pilate, and, the most mischievous super, and a most mischievous uh, superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. And so he spoke uh, without favor of Christianity. I mean, the guy was not uh, a fan of, of Christianity. He was definitely a a secular Roman citizen, uh, did, did not like Christianity, but his account verifies, yeah, this Jesus guy, he, he lived and he died under Pontius Pilate. I mean, that was, that was something that happened. Our government uh, under Pontius Pilate crucified this guy. And because of that, uh, this e- what he calls an evil notion, this, this idea of Christianity uh, has risen up. And, and so he's talking about it as a sort of problem uh, but he's acknowledging the reality that Jesus existed. And so this is an extra biblical source. This is not in the Bible. This is somebody outside of the Bible acknowledging uh, the historical uh, account of Jesus' life and death. And so here again, this is what Bart Ehrman's referring to. There are, there are non-biblical accounts of Jesus that are very solid. Uh, another one that we look at is Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian. And, uh, and Josephus uh, says this, uh, about, the time, uh, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he uh, wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. And so Josephus was a, a Jewish historian who gave an account of this Jesus who performed miracles, was killed. His followers uh, did not lose hope, um, and he reappeared and, and has since uh, driven the, the Christian movement uh, to life. And so Josephus is another extra-biblical source uh, for the account of Jesus. Uh, the Babylonian Talmud, so this was an early uh, Jewish rabbinic writings from, from around 50 A.D. all the way maybe up to 200 or so, um, they have this account. Uh, on the eve of Passover, Yeshu, um, that is the, the synonymous with Jew, uh, Jesus, uh, was hanged. And so hanged, uh, we also see uh, the crucifixion described as a hanging elsewhere in the scriptures. Um, Jesus was hanged. 
For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald cried, he is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. And so this, again, is a Jewish account. These are, this is not a, an account of people who believe in the, the messianic nature of Jesus. They just believe him to be uh, a person who did uh, really in, uh, fulfill a lot of the prophecies that he said to have fulfilled, and they kind of stopped short of saying that he rose from the dead. But they acknowledge uh, Jesus' existence and his death uh, on the cross. And, and last, what we'll look at is the weakness of the criticisms of the life, uh, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, we'll start with this idea of cramped starting points. So one author uh, about, who, who writes about the Christian, um, uh, excuse me, about Jesus and the historical account of Jesus, he wrote a book called Fabricating Jesus, a guy named Craig Evans. Um, basically, the point was this. In, in recent decades, uh, some of the, the arguments against the life of Jesus popped up and they were, they were really weak arguments because they weren't actually conclusions that somebody had proven with evidence. They just started from the idea that Jesus was probably illiterate, for example. So they would say, well, Jesus was probably illiterate, and since he was probably illiterate, he couldn't have read the Old Testament. Since he couldn't have read the Old Testament, then he couldn't have said those things that, that it says that he said when he quoted the Old Testament. And so they, they sort of disprove uh, the, the gospel accounts by starting somewhere that they didn't even prove their position. And so uh, Evans calls those uh, cramped starting points. And he says, these popped up uh, every now and then where people would just start from a random spot where they could just make a claim, and then with that claim, they could disprove the Gospels. But they never bothered to prove that starting point. It's called a presupposition. Where they start, uh, they never actually proved it. It was just a presupposition. Well, if I suppose this uh, originally, then I can draw this line. But that presupposition had no basis in fact. And so he calls those cramped starting points. So, so oftentimes the criticisms uh, against the life of Jesus. So, so for example, the people that say Jesus never actually lived, he wasn't an actual person, those are often these cramped starting points. People, people come up with, they sort of make up this presupposition and they go from there and get to the point that, hey, Jesus never actually existed. Uh, another one is evidence of omission. Now, this is, a, this is a, a mistake that people on both sides will make. The evidence of omission basically goes like this. If it doesn't say it, then it must not have happened. If it's, if it's been omitted, if it's not there, then we can pretty safely say that it didn't happen. And so uh, where, where maybe one gospel account says something here happened, but another gospel account doesn't say that same thing happened, they go, well, since it says it didn't, didn't happen, uh, then it must not have happened. So why did this one say it happened? They, re they refute each other. Look at that. It doesn't work. And that's just, that's just going on the evidence of omission. And that's a weak argument. We do the same thing as Christians at times, and we need to be careful not to. Uh, but that is a weak argument against the, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The next is the apparent scriptural contradictions. Now, I'm not going to get into to a lot of these right now, and, and we'll talk a little bit about these in, the, in future lessons. Uh, but, but going back to what we talked about earlier with the, the genealogies of Matthew and, and Luke, we see what looks like contradictions but so often what happens when we see a contradiction in Scripture is we, we work through the context, we understand the, the, the origin, the author, the people it was written to, we study it more closely, and suddenly it's not really a contradiction, it actually works very well together. And when you study those contradictions, what I have found, Brandon Carpenter, who was a pastor here recently, a lot of you remember him, uh, Brandon, and I would study under Brandon, he would teach us about these, and some of the coolest moments uh, of learning about the Bible used to come from 
uh, Brandon sort of opening my eyes to where what, what looked like a contradiction in Scripture was in fact Scripture working beautifully in harmony together. And so uh, a lot of times critics will say that there are these scriptural contradictions that disprove it, and those just tend not to ever work out for them in the end. And then last, uh, Jesus was derived from a pagan myth. Now this is, a, this is an argument that I actually saw for the first time in college. I was, I was watching, uh, I, don't, I don't know what I was watching, I don't, I don't remember, but a friend of mine uh, pulls up this video on YouTube and he goes, here, I want to show you this. And it was called the Zeitgeist documentary, and it was, about, it was the, the part about religion. And, and this documenter goes through all of these details of Christianity, and he goes, look, these are all based on these pagan religions that came long before Christianity. Things like Jesus' birth on the 25th of December, uh, things like Jesus' resurrection, and, and, and some of the different things that Jesus did in his life, the virgin birth. These all came from these pagan religions, and they got pieced together after the fact. And Christianity is just this made-up religion based on some crazy notion that somebody had to pull these pagan myths together. And, and that's a really, really convincing argument at face value. When you watch that video, uh, I, I remember watching it in college, and I was a believer, and I went, whoa, there's a lot I have to work through right now. There's a lot of issues that i got to address here. Uh, but, but when I did address them, uh, they were pretty easily disproven. Um, and, and so, uh, for example... Um, Daryl Whitmer says, says this about the idea of, of Jews getting their religion from uh, pagans. He says, no respectable Jew would have ever condescended to buy into a Greek or a Babylonian mythological base for an account dealing with the birth of his or her Messiah. Jews long before uh, these Babylonian pagan religions were talking about a Messiah. They were prophesying about a Messiah. And so they would not have gone, you know what, we need to borrow someone else's idea of a savior, and we need to piece that together, and that's where we'll get Jesus. And that just, that just didn't happen. And so if, if you ever do see something like that, and it's confusing, uh, do a little research. Um, come talk to me. Like, I would love to walk through that with you, uh, but it's a weak argument um, that, that seems really good at first, and it just falls apart as soon as you um, do a little bit of poking. So um, finally, in conclusion, uh, I, I just want to say this. Um, if, you, uh, if you come into this with any kind of doubts, any kind of uh, you know, uh, criticisms of, of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, how, how do I know that happened? I don't think that happened. Um, I want to say this. Um, as Christians, when facing all of these difficult questions that we're talking about this semester in here, in this, in this lesson, uh, we look at the resurrection of Jesus as the most important. So for us, as Christians, this is the most important question that we'll look at. And if the resurrection did happen... Uh, it not only helps us to answer some of the other questions, but it also makes them a little less significant. So if we can, if we can talk about the resurrection and we can be convinced of the resurrection, then a lot of these other questions, they're still important, we'll still talk about them, but man, they subside a whole lot in significance. And, at the, same, uh, and the same is actually true for a non-believer. If the resurrection never happened, Paul has essentially handed you the verdict to the whole thing. Uh, you wouldn't need to bother with any other questions. You wouldn't need to go find any other evidences to prove Christianity wrong. Uh, because if you prove the resurrection false, then you've destroyed the Christian faith. However, it would be wise for non-believers to consider the reality that if Jesus did, in fact, raise from the dead, uh, because if he did, it doesn't just minimize the other questions for Christians, uh, but for the non-believer as well. If Jesus raised from the dead, what does it mean 
for you. Uh, and you'll want to deal with the implications and the reality of that before you worry about any of the other arguments.